0: Welcome to Rocks Back Pages Podcast. My name's Barney Hoskins. I'm here with my colleague, Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And we're sitting here with our special guest, Mick Houghton. I'm very pleased, even honoured, to be here. Honoured? <laughs> well, we're honoured to have you here. Thanks for coming in. You're here. I'm clutching to my bosom a copy of your new book, Fried and Justified, and I'll take a deep breath before attempting the subtitle. Hits, Myths, Breakups and Breakdowns in the Record Business, 1978 to 1998. This is published by Faber. It is your riveting memoir of working in the industry both as a journalist we've had you on Rocksmack Pages for a good number of years probably 15 plus years but also and more notably I guess as a publicist, a PR I, you, know, you have some difficulties with some of these terms Press officer. so what do, you, <laughs> what, do you, what do you say that you used to do and still do? I prefer publicist, publicist and I
1: think that's because I'm really into movies and it's kind of more Hollywood Edwards. Yeah. Press officer, sounds like
0: you work for the Gas Board. Mm. <laughs> and, then, and you've never worked for the Gas Board uh, yet. No, 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 no. But you have done publicity for some fairly kind of interesting characters over the years. And I'm thinking everyone from, obviously, Echo and the Bunny Men, but also it's like Sun Ra. Yeah. Sun Ra, the KLF, probably most famously, you were sort of privy to all that madness. I first met you, I'm guessing early 80s, and we actually went up to Liverpool. I was doing a story on Echo and the Bunny Man. My memory is that Bill Drummond was at the wheel and drove you and I up to Liverpool.
1: Yeah, my, I mean, my memory is we took the train, but at the same time, there was a point when I refused to drive anywhere with Bill Drummond because he was the worst driver. He had a truck, he had a truck, and he would just have conversations with the person sitting behind you take
0: his hands yes, off the that's wheel very, I remember him sort if, of if, turning around Yeah, you know, he
1: would turn a car- vehicle around in the middle of a motorway stuff like that yeah. <laughs> and, uh, um, I mean good old Anton Corbyn once refused to come back with him I think we had. To, he came back on the train rather than drive back with Bill because he just thought so, he's the worst driver I've ever been with.
0: Really, really. Well, I think Anton did the cover shot for that issue of Enemy. And what I actually remember is being in a fairly desperate state when we got to the hotel. I think I, I think I asked you, Mick. My memory is we were checking in whether you knew anywhere I could score a certain substance. And you said no. I, I, I don't live in Liverpool, and I'm not going to ask Gecko and the Bunny Men where you where you can score a certain substance. Uh, but I mean,
1: look- interestingly, at that time, whichever whichever date we're we're talking about, they they were. A- They were pretty much a drug-free band. They were. They were were fresh-faced young lads. I mean, people forget, you know, I think by the end of 1980 going into 81 up until then, I think both the Teardrop Explodes and the Bunnymen were drug-free bands. Yes,
2: in in your book, it's very interesting about how Cope was positively anti-drug, hadn't taken any, and then bit by bit it chipped away. David Balfe gave him his first acid trip and
1: sort of... Oh, no, it it wasn't Balfe, it was a guy called Alan Gill. They brought in another guitarist called Alan Gill. He skinned up for the first time <laughs> and told Copey, look, this all relaxed you, man. This all relaxes you. And he, and he did. It's absolutely. <laughs> and, um, I mean, Balfrey may have given him his first tab of acid, I think but this, his first yeah. joint was, was Alan Gill. Right. And I think at that point, he never even smoked a
0: cigarette.
2: Well, it worked, didn't it? The drugs <laughs> did work. <laughs> the drugs
1: didn't work.
0: And probably continued to work. I don't know. We'll get on to Copy and Mac and this sort of cast of Liverpudlian and other characters in due course. I want to just start by asking you how you got into writing. I mean, you write about this book, but for our purposes, it's interesting to ask you about Let It Rock, particularly the first Piece I've selected to, to as, yeah, the featured writer on the homepage is what actually turned out to be the, the cover of the last issue of Let It Rock, which was the interview you did with Emmy Lou Harris in '75. Yeah. So, how did you get to that, to writing a cover story for Let It Rock?
1: Well, I guess probably like a lot of people, I mean, I started writing at university. And a bunch of us actually, uh, we, we, there was a page in the magazine which was called Ripple, that's the University magazine called Ripple. Ripple. But we started a magazine. Named after
0: the dead track,
1: no <laughs> tell, I, wish, I wish, I <laughs> wish. But we started a magazine, and the magazine we started only ran for two issues was called Fast and Bulbous. Fast and Bulbous. We oh, uh, know that reference. So, and I think at that point, I'd met a few people in the industry. I think the one that influenced me most and made me think, you know, I wouldn't mind being in this industry was a guy called Andrew Lauder. Who then worked at Liberty United Artists? Yes, that was just one of those things. You know, I began writing. It was largely because I was obsessed with music. I think I knew a lot. I knew a lot about music. I don't think I was a particularly good writer, but you kind of learn on the job. But after I'd left uni, Let It Rock. I think you know, I think the first issue I wrote for might be been the fourth or fifth issue. Okay, and I'd just seen it on the shelves, and I thought this is the magazine I'd like to write for. And I sent some stuff into. A lovely man called Dave Lang, yeah. who was the editor, and he commissioned me to write a feature about Tim Buckley, which I got paid 25 quid for. So that was your
0: first piece? Yeah, that was was first, that was first. Your first piece was, was a, quite a long feature on Tim Buckley, yeah. and you got paid 25, got quid.
1: 20, 25 quid. I didn't write this feature as long again until <laughs> that Emily Lou <laughs> Harris piece, yeah. which happened to be my first cover story and the last issue of the magazine yeah. Yeah, I don't yeah. know that those two things are significant
0: I had so. seen Emmy Lou on that as she played I think the New Victoria yeah. theatre was it Was it that trip it, it was that trip and James Burton was playing yeah. and it was that amazing yeah, yeah. hot band yeah, yeah. and I, I still remember that being a, just an astonishing um, thing the, and the
2: and following year seeing Bonnie Raitt at the new Victorian, as the crowd were kind of embracing her, she said, Emily told me it'd be like this. <laughs> oh, that's nice. <laughs> yeah. There were some good shows <laughs> at that. I was going to say, yeah. it's, it's a
1: really forgotten venue. Yes. Like, I remember seeing Woody Nelson there. Ah, oh, uh, that must have been good. good. Great place uh, to see him. And I think Chris Christopherson might have been mm. supporting him. No, okay. Billy, sorry, Billy Swan was supporting
0: him. Billy Swan i saw john martin i saw a bunch of shows i thought i saw rufus with, with chaka khan cool. there i mean it was it was and I, I i it is well i have good memories of pretty yeah. much every show yeah. i yeah. saw at the new victoria and emily was wonderful and what was let it rock like i mean because i think you talk about you were you were in awe of obviously like charlie gillett and there were a number of writers there yeah uh, i mean honest, that, well, i found john pigeon you're, you're yeah all remember? john pigeon was there
1: yeah. i mean when i first went there and, and they had these regular monthly meetings I was just totally intimidated by all of them. Yeah. You, know, you had Charlie Gillett, you had Carl Dallas. Yes. I think Pigeon, Dave Lang, Mike Flubpage, Phil Hardy, I felt a little bit excluded from that clique because they'd, yeah. they'd all been at Sussex University and they'd all to, they right. all knew each other. But also, the, the magazine was very much geared towards, I guess a lot of it, I think a lot of it was inspired by Charlie's book. So mm-hmm. there was
0: a lot of the and 50's City. Rock and, yeah. Yeah. And lots of 50s rock and roll. That was sort of the aesthetic, in a way, yeah. wasn't it?
1: So, and, and in a way, the stuff I wanted to write about, I would sit there and say, well, we should be doing a feature on the birds, and they just look at me, you know. Witheringly. Witheringly. Well, did I, I they think did. that that
0: was for sort of zigzag and those there sorts There was, of kind of, yeah. yeah. I mean, zigzag, they were quite snobbish. They were, I, they I were. felt there was a they snobbery, at, at which, I mean, a healthy yeah. snobbery, at let I'll, it write. It
2: also had a slightly kind of academic bent. A lot of the okay. writing had a very sort of academic vibe about it. And I was very much a zigzag reader at the time. I bought Let It Rock. I bought Cream as well, C-R-E-A-M. which yes, is the, other the British of, one. Of the three. Yeah. And I found Let It Rock slightly intimidating back in the day. No,
1: it, it was and they were. And it, it was, I found it too academic. I mean, Zig was much more i think a magazine for fans yeah like fans. i think
0: that's right yeah. let's it rock was more than just a mag for fans yeah. wasn't it i think maybe that's why i like the fact that it it would have a piece about Led zeppelin for example or david bowie mm-hmm. but then it would have a kind of a long feature about doo wop yeah. or or rick nelson or, and pete, pete wingfield wrote for it as well. pete wingfield yeah. definitely wrote for it he had a soul column in yeah. fact so before uh, 18 with a bullet
1: yeah it had some great, I mean, Clive James wrote for Let It Rock. Yeah. Clive James wrote, exactly. In fact, he wrote a brilliant piece about Sandy Denny in, uh, in Let It Rock. Did he? Yeah. Why don't we have that on
2: Rock's Back Pages? Why don't we have Clive James on Rock's Back Pages? This, this
0: is a conversation for another day. <laughs> but so you, you wrote for quite a few years, you wrote also for, for Sound and for Circus. Yeah. So you wrote probably for, you know, a total of what? six, seven years straight before ge- going into publicity? I guess it was or from... Less. I mean,
1: probably 73, 74 to 78. Yeah. But the thing is, even though I, I, I did write for sounds, I mean, I, and I used to envy the people that all the guys that were on the staff at, at the four music weeklies. Mm-hmm. But there was a surprising amount of work out there. Mm-hmm. You know, you, there was all sorts of odd things you could do, whether it was story of pop part works. and I mean, I did loads of yeah. stuff for Dave Lang and Phil Hardy's encyclopedia. Country music magazines, mm-hmm. beat, good old beat instrumental, you know? beat instrumental, beat instrumental. Even. yeah, it was
0: a real kind of, that was a real sort of hangover from the sixties. Yeah. I mean, I interviewed
1: it? Steely Dam for beat instrumental. Did you? And my, and my memory is that it was a really good interview because I'd heard they were really difficult, and we just got on. But of course, I don't have the piece. I've never been able to find the piece mm-hmm. anywhere, and I might find it one day and find out it was a terrible interview. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, in my mind, I was I was the person that actually got. You know, got on well with, with Steely Down. What
2: was that 74 when they first when it it, came over? It was over? when they came over. Yeah. Did, uh, you saw them. I yeah. saw them there. Yeah, yeah, me, yeah too. me
1: too. Yeah, okay. I And mean, it was a fantastic time. And if you were a music journalist, and I wasn't a kind of major important journalist, but the fact that I wrote for all these people meant that I don't think there was any gig I didn't get to go to, get tickets for. I don't think there was any records that I couldn't mm. get my hands yeah. on. It, it was just so open. It was so say, fair really. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And so... There's no, you know, whether it's Neil Young's Tonight's Tonight tour, you know, Little Feet, mm. the famous Little Feet of the Rainbow, mm. you know, you just, get, you just ring up and get tickets. I mean, by the end with me when I was doing PR stuff, you know, you'd be lucky to have 10 tickets to, to, to share out. To distribute, you know, right. Whereas, for, you know, it was just, so yeah, so, and Steely Dan was fantastic. I went yeah. to the
2: wrong night because there's a bootleg of the other night, which is so much better than the night I went to.
0: <laughs> let's skip forward to yeah. Europe. Warners and essentially they acquire the Sire label from Seymour Stein that becomes absorbed into yeah. Warners and, and you fairly rapidly get assigned these amazing New York bands who, well, yeah, I mean, who've that's, changed that's, yeah. the sound of music that's, that's Williams, the, the, the only Ramones reason. and Talking yeah. Heads most famous that's stuff.
1: the only reason I ended up becoming a PR really is because I'd gone to WA because they'd sacked their house writer major labels had in-house writers mm-hmm. yeah And they sacked the guy because he'd been, you know, nicking stuff from the boardroom and selling off. Gold discs and stuff like that. Right? Always, always <laughs> one of those. So, um, it wasn't so they <laughs> <laughs> no, no Nick, Nick was a frequent visitor to WA. Wow, we're really traducing
0: Mr. Kent <laughs> I,
1: I think every day, and he would always walk out with the arm pulls of records straight yeah. straight down to Cheapo Cheapo. Yeah.
0: Which is, I saw him down do down it many times. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> but, anyway, which was it, yeah. yeah. So, I was there as, this, as the in house writer, and I was only going to be there for a month, and it was in that month that. Sire switched from Phonogram to Warner's, and I mean the shock for me in a way was that even even within the press office nobody knew anything about Sire Records, and most of the guys in you know in, in promotions and stuff like that and sales they didn't had never heard of the Ramones or Talking Heads, so I guess I was going, mm. you've got the Ramones, you've got Talking Heads. Mm, yeah. I mean my boss that Warners at that time was more of Bellis. Who I knew. And who you knew. Yeah. And uh, and I think she just recognised that... Well, I, was, I was just into these bands and said, look, why don't you stay on, carry on doing the writing the biogs and press releases, but you can look after Sire. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, the reason I, was, I wasn't I was reticent, because it was so exciting, because I knew there was a new Ramones album, I knew mm-hmm. Talking Heads' second album was coming out, mm. was that I genuinely didn't think it was cut out to be a publicist because i was the antithesis of what publicists are about I mean, i wasn't you know
0: i was quiet i mumbled yeah you've I, never I, been like in your face i've never been in your face you know substance. i even i remember thinking that back back in the day yeah. and that was w- what was refreshing about you well you I, th- I was
1: gonna say in a way it really worked in my favor because and plus i knew about music and and i think having been a journalist i never stopped identifying with journalists. I think I always, right. I mean, when I went into PR, I thought, it's just crossing to the dark side. Yeah. And I had a stigma about it for a long time, really, because I wanted to. Be, I really wanted to be a journalist. But the irony is that I've become a publicist and working at Warner Brothers and all these bands that I'd never got the opportunity to write about, like the Ramones, like Talking Heads. Suddenly I was, I was looking after them. Yeah. And you kind of realise that it's such a different process to be a journalist and to be, you know, involved behind the scenes, if you like, in the band. And it still didn't, you know, diminish the stigma I had. But you, you knew you were part of something. You, mm-hmm. knew, you knew you were involved. And even though with American bands it was limited, because obviously you, they came over when there was a record out yeah. you mm-hmm. they toured. But at least in those days, certainly with both those bands, you know, the tradition that when you did a feature. You spent two, three days on the road with them, so I, I, you know I got to know both bands mm. just because you hung out with them for two, yeah, three yeah. days.
0: It and was particularly interesting for me reading about your relationship with Talking Heads and, and David Byrne. Because sort of earlier than I experienced it, so when I interviewed them in I think it was probably eighty three, it was already it was, it was very clearly two camps at that point. But what I learned from your I remember I remember interviewing David Byrne after a show in Maryland and then going to a different dressing room, quite a long way from David's dressing room, <laughs> and Tina and Chris sitting there together not being really rude about burn but just but rolling their eyes and saying yeah well yeah, oh, we've david got some, we've this got, we, david we've got some we've got, got
2: We've got interviews on the site where long before they yeah. actually broke up
0: where yeah they've been quite she, snide they have been
2: snarling about him right. I mean really really yeah. really rude yeah. about him yeah. it's extraordinary they actually lost I mean the fact is she had this resentment justifiable that he asked her to re-audition when the band got signed yeah you know um, and I don't think she ever
1: quite got over that no I mean that's that's in the book She yeah. t- she yeah. told me that and, yes, um, you do mention that she had to audition even, again. Even yes. now, when pe- people, people, when they read the book, say, is that true? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I, so I start, God, is it true? Yeah, I remember telling me. But it's it's funny that I think it wasn't till, I think when I first got involved with them, which was 1980, the riff didn't really, it was only, I guess the riff was only just beginning then. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't till after, I think, after Fear of Music, I think, when you could tell that. was that the, We got one interview on the site where, she's really bitchy about Eno
2: and David Byrne, yeah. as the two of them yeah. became best buddies, yeah. to the exclusion of the rest oh, of the Oh, yeah, band. She's, got,
1: she's saying things like, oh, they're starting to dress alike, they're starting yes. to look alike. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, I think when, what was the album after? The album uh, was Remain in uh, Life. Remain in Life. Yeah. That, that was when the first pressing of the album actually didn't credit any of the, uh, anybody other than Byrne and Eno. Really? Yeah. Wow. And, that, and, and and that it was a mistake, and, mm. and I think. Um, but no, she doesn't play bass much on that album. It's mostly yeah, Buster. Absolutely, Bust but that's when that's when she it really started to yeah. come out in print. I, I think there's a piece with Paul Rambali that uh, mm-hmm. Enemy did, which was the first interview I did where she talked about all this stuff. And, okay, and basically it was kind of like. Yes, David Byrne might have written the lyrics, but mm. all these songs are the result of a collaborative effort on the group's part. Yeah, yeah, and it wasn't just her, and even even Chris, who was Sweet as Pie, was mm. chiming in at that point. And, mm. and Jerry Harrison, who I was very interested was that, 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 that I really hadn't become aware of Sire Records as a label
2: until those bands emerged. And reading your books, fascinating that actually the, the label goes Much way back, back before yep. that, and also that Seymour Stein's of sort of New York record man of a certain sort of description but he comes over here you take him the two of you go around and see see loads of bands around england which is just not something one would imagine yeah
1: i mean i think seymour was the first great character that i met right and and when i met seymour this was like this is what this is what record company people are supposed to be like yes you know whereas all the people at warner's by that time kind of outside of the press office anyway, you know, the marketing people were starting to come in. Yeah. And the promo people were very old school. I mean, the promo people would hear a Talking Heads record and say, you know, this is jungle music. You know, this guy guy sounds like he's being strangled and probably should be, stuff like that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, I I remember them being apoplectic when they first heard pop groups Beyond Good and Evil. You know, it was just like this... Well, it's, they were just appalled. Mm. Yeah, and then and then there was a video. I don't know if you remember. There was a video for it, which was basically completely black, ex- except for them occasionally appearing carrying a torch. And and the TV promo guy was saying, "We'll never get this shit on television. What a, <laughs> what a waste of money." You know?
3: <laughs> um.
0: <laughs> yeah, I had forgotten the pop group were even, like, part of... Part of yeah. uh, well, it was yeah, very, we it were was very brief, but, but, yeah. but I
1: guess, like I say, Seymour was mm. exactly what I thought people mm, were supposed sure. to be like, and, and then something Seymour Seymour. Yeah, was yeah, good. exactly, exactly. And um, he was just great to hang out with, and there's a lot that isn't in the book, hanging out with Seymour, because it would be libelous <laughs> if I put it in. <laughs> We'll do a secret secret one. one Should
0: we jump forward to to Liverpool particularly? Because, I mean, if one associates you with any specific city, it would probably be Liverpool, given that you did publicity for Echo and the Bonnie Man and the Teardrop Explodes. So, what was. What was happening in Liverpool at that time and nothing not a great deal had happened up there we know about deaf school and other things but not a huge amount happened in Liverpool since the Beatles yeah. and then suddenly we've got this new scene we've got Eric's there when did you what was the first occasion you went up there was it to meet? To it, it was I, I, the
1: reason I, reason I got to work with Bunnyman Bunny was because I was still at WA yeah. and I mean Seema I wanted to sign them that's it, right sire, but he'd he'd overspent so he did a deal with Rob Dickens, who was head of Warner Publishing. Yep. And out Rob had, had produced Death School, I think, so he had these kind of links to Liverpool. Mm-hmm. So they sat up a label called Kurova. So it was another WA label. I worked on a lot of WA label stuff. Yeah. And that would have been April, May 1980. The first single was Rescue. I and mean, this is in the book. The first, the first time I met them was when I went up to Liverpool with Paul Morley. Okay. And, and funny enough, with Anton, actually, uh, and Anton hadn't long been at the enemy at that point. They were just impossible, you know, they were, they were not impossible, but they were very, very difficult to interview in those days. And I don't think it was an act, I just think that's the only way they could deal with it. They, mm-hmm. they weren't comfortable talking to people. Mm-hmm. They also had a real insularity as a group, so they were quite close knit. Uh, I mean, my, my impression of the Bunny Men in, in those early days was that their main motivation came out of negativity. Everything <laughs> it, everything was about what they didn't want to do. Typical you know. so Scousers? Well, I mean, because I, I remember all those bands... I'm not going to agree with
2: that. <laughs> yes, all those bands used to, used to sort of speak in slogans. If you read the, the early interviews, they, the, the, they tend to come out like they've been thinking what to say I mean that's like Mm. Pete Wiley calling rockism you know as a a phrase and that's that's kind of what you're describing and
1: and at that point before Mac became this kind of Mac the mouth character I think he would definitely be thinking what am I going to say that makes me sound intelligent and so he would say something and Will would immediately say what he just said is complete bollocks (laughs) because Will was the kind of earthy down to the soul of the band kind of character but I think the thing is that it, it sort of it kind of worked, and I think for a while that was their reputation. I think they had, they, they had quite a legendary reputation for being one of
0: the most difficult bands. To interview. I, I have to say I found them quite friendly. I don't yeah. know but whether I I'm misremembering. Bit,
1: I think it's a little bit later. It kind of changed. I mean, once Crocodiles came out, which was the album, and once, I think, that got brilliant reviews, and and I think once they started to become... A, a better live band mm. which had a lot to do with around that time sort of september october mm. that year was when they they de- developed the whole camo look they had yeah. the, the whole kind of apocalypse now stage sets mm-hmm. and that i think that enabled them to grow because they were quite they were quite shy in a way i mean they they they, they weren't mm. that comfortable being on stage but i think they could hide behind the camo and the smoke and the and the netting and stuff like that so i think if I first met them in May, I mean, by, probably by the time you met them, certainly within five or six months, they become much more comfortable about what they were doing. So mm. I think I think they became friendlier.
2: Mm. Um, but this also brought you into contact with Bill Drummond. Yeah, and that was to be a lasting sort of yeah. friendship and relationship. Well,
1: Bill, Bill obviously, Bill managed the men. I mean, yeah. it, it wasn't this wasn't the reason why, but I mean, I left Warner's about three or four months after I'd, I'd started working with the Bunnyman mm-hmm. to set up on my own. And Bill was not only managing Bunnyman, but he was managing the Teardrops. Right. So he asked me if I'd look after the Teardrops as well. So when I left as an independent, uh, I think that first month I had Bunnyman were touring, Teardrops debut album, Talking Heads album. I mean, it was it was. A, it was mm. As I tend to say to people, they say, "Well, what advice do you give to people that want to be a, become a publicist? Mm. say, "Just work on stuff that isn't shit, basically." Because, yeah. Because so I started off with a really good roster. It had all disappeared about two years later. (laughs) It started well.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why didn't Eka and the Bunny Men become like. The, the biggest band in the planet I always sort of think well, I, I think I reviewed maybe October and I reviewed Porcupine I really liked Heaven Up Here and I remember thinking there were sort of parallels with U2 in the sense that there was this kind of very dramatic anthemic kind of rock thing which U2 stole from the Bunny Man but well I mean, so I, there I, I, you go so so in a way it's a slightly it's an interesting thing to look at why did you 2 become the biggest band in the world and why did the bunny men get left
1: behind. I think I, you know, I think and this is actually true of not almost not everybody I work with, but almost all the people I work with, they were all classic underachievers. Or yeah, under yeah. underachievers insofar as they achieved things to a level that they wanted to achieve. Yeah. And, and, and and you know, the bunny man I mean I think there's something about Liverpool as well that it people just don't want to leave home. People they mm. you know, all those fans well, they all still live in Don't Liverpool, get
0: bigger than your boots. Don't get bigger something. than your boots in right. a
1: way. And they didn't, didn't stop the Beatles. No, they didn't stop the Beatles. <laughs> no. no, that's, that's an exception. And then some, but they didn't want to do the work. They didn't like touring America. They wouldn't. You know, I think Rob Dickens was always trying to get Steve. Really liked to produce them. They didn't. They wanted to keep the sound that they had. Mm-hmm. But they kind of didn't do the things that you're supposed to do. They put, didn't put the, the hours in. Yeah. But also, to some extent, what made the Bunny Man. Was a lot of what Bill Drummond brought to to them, which was to to have these kind of wacky tours. And mm-hmm. I mean, one of the first things I got involved with in eighty one was when they did a mystery gig.
0: Yeah,
1: and, and the mystery gig was going to be filmed, and it was going to be a feature film, and, and that was the story. So you had this completely unknown band that was that was going to, we're making a feature film right. about this. This, as it turned out, you know, I think it was shown at the ICA and somewhere in Liverpool, mm-hmm. but it didn't matter <laughs> because I think Bill always kept putting up the stakes and and that that tour got them known and 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 and, you know just just he he helped create this myth around the buddy man. Mm -hmm. But equally I think the myth almost meant that people in people in this country almost kept them to themselves really. And I mean they they did things that made them most interesting band in the country, but not things that were gonna appeal to Mm -hmm. Americans. Uh, so you know, you, yeah. and that's what you
0: two did, they, Mick. You know. We have to talk about a certain review of a certain album. If we move from <laughs> Mac the Mouth to <laughs> to Julian, world, shut your mouth. Cope. Um, let me just read. this. I know what's coming. <laughs> I never under. <laughs> I never understood. Why world shut your mouth was so slated in the press? Nothing I had handled before had got such a mauling. It was such an about turn by the entire rock press, but the savagery of the enemy review really pissed me off when I read this last week, I felt slightly guilty in- and <laughs> I'm <laughs> um, because we both know who yeah. wrote that. But,
1: no, but the thing is, and obviously, I haven't named you, and part of the reason not very sweet uh, part part you? of the
0: reason I didn't, Well, you're naming me you now. now. I'm <laughs> naming
1: you, you're, you, were that person. But part of the reason I didn't name you was because Julian made such a thing of it. In his book? In his book. In fact, there's a cast of characters for Repossess, and you're one of the cast of characters, purely so he could say, you know, he could just have... Sure. Yeah, you know, have a, have a go at you for that.
0: I mean to read what you wrote and obviously to read what Julian wrote a few few years ago. It was I was quite shocked this, to me it was just like I mean we were all giving bad reviews to all sorts of yeah. albums it was just another not very favorable review so to learn all that time later that it just it, it, it had had this kind of impact I, well, I think was quite like, odd
1: yeah, i mean it pissed me, i think it pissed me off because by and large i didn't get pissed off about bad reviews it was kind of like mm. you, you just took it on the chin yeah. but i think because i was really close to julian and he was going through quite. He was going through quite a difficult time. Sure, sure. And no, it's just an interesting time. And I do remember ringing up Neil Spencer and Neil, Neil giving it the old. We have to respect our, our writers and what they say. <laughs> even
0: Barney Hoskins. Even, <laughs> even, even <laughs> Barney Hoskins.
1: <laughs> and then, of course, although it was a couple of years later, I'm thinking, so, yeah, yes. So, what about Mark Sinker's review of you too? Then that you pulled, you know, right. because because it wasn't a good review, and you, right. you had to get U2
0: never heard of that record. one before. Well, that's true.
1: <laughs> um, Interesting. Um, Interesting. So you kind of knew that that went on, and, mm. and I, I was just pissed off. Mm. Yeah, no, and I, and talk, I, and I think I was know. pissed off because Julian was a really close friend. He was, he was going through a trouble period, and but he was really gracious about it. He was just like, "Well, you know, it's kind oh. of what they've always wanted to say about me." Oh. <laughs>
2: I think there's one thing that everyone overestimates how powerful the press is in in certain respects. I mean, you can get fantastic reviews and sell no records whatsoever, Mm -hmm. or records can develop a life of their own without the press having any sort of interaction with it at all. I mean, I think people read the music press not to get recommendations as to what to buy, but actually for the pleasure of reading this kind of writing about this kind of subject. I mean, do you think there's a correlation between uh, good reviews and uh, and good sales?
0: Not now,
1: sure. Not now, but I think then, you know, I think then, um, because the the music weeklies, particularly enemy, Melody Maker and Sounds, Mm. you know... if you if you looked after the sort of groups I looked after, mm-hmm. on one level, you could have done the job just by working through those three mm-hmm. papers because mm-hmm. because they, they you know as you know they were weekly papers they were all selling yeah. two hundred thousand there thereabouts and more, and in a way the way you saw how a group progressed was was through the music press, mm-hmm. yeah I mean Bill Bill John writes a really funny introduction to the book about how when we first met his his, his thinking was what do we need a Press officer, for what do you actually do? Mm. Because all you yeah. do is you you mail the singles to the poor music papers, you get your singles oh. of the week, and, and so I, I, it,
2: mm. I'd agree with what, what you say is you see the way a band progresses through the music press. I think that's a different thing from the music press resulting in sales. No, specifically. no, no, um, and I think you're absolutely right. I think that's one of the reasons why people enjoy follow bands through the music
1: press and, and, mm. and want to read this interview, then the following interview yeah. and so on and so forth. Mm. But, it, um, but, it did, but it did correlate to sales because record companies didn't know how to break those bands mm. unless they could get them on the radio. So the, the, the press did help. And, and, mm. and even then, not, not to the extent it did a few years later, if you had that sort of press, it would get you into the lower reaches of the chart. Mm. It could get you into the top 40, which means mm. you could get top of the pops. You had more influence at radio. So, with the sort of the groups I've worked with, press came first.
3: Yeah.
0: I do want to make it clear that I wasn't, uh, I didn't hate Teardrop Exposed, uh, for example. Um, <laughs> and I didn't have anything against you. I just genuinely didn't think it was a particularly great record. And I subsequently became much more interested in him. And I think he's become. One of the most interesting figures yeah, to emerge yeah. from rock music in yeah. in the UK. I mean, extraordinary writer. He'd already written that amazing NME guide to sort yeah, of a Tales from the Drugs, a, a garage yeah. punk ass. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, whole, the nuggets. I, I think here. that I think that was the thing that it was amazing. Pissed, that, that pissed me off most because that was yeah. about
1: three months before it was. So that, I think. I so I knew it, he yeah.
0: knew his stuff, yeah. and I was re- <laughs> I knew he was a really cool guy, and I, that that has only been reinforced by stuff I've read by him since. I mean, the Krautrock sampler mm-hmm. book was incredible. And have been remarkable records, and yeah. you write very well about those, so I'm delighted that i mean i don't know you know how happy Julian Cope is today. I hope he's really happy because he's done some amazing yeah. work and he will he will be remembered as one of the great eccentrics yeah. i think
1: but, but oddly enough i think his entire career was he was not loathed, but he he had he had as much criticism as he did praise mm. i mean throughout throughout the whole career mm. I think so for me, you know you know when you know, there was that interesting period when he wrote Head On, yeah. and then he wrote Crow Rock Sample, culminating in the Modern Antiquarian. When, which is what I say in the book, there's a point around the mid '90s when I think people were taking him more seriously as a writer mm-hmm. and as a musician. I think that's probably right. And, but, but for me, I, I just hated the fact that Julian was perceived as this rock nutter. Yeah, uh, as Sounds always used to call people yeah. rock. And it's all acid like, ketchup, yeah, acid Yeah, acid Yeah, too, yeah, because, yeah. Because he was so much more than that. And, and I think when. I thought when Modern Antiquarian came out mm. finally or finally, he's, he's kind of venerated. but again it's in the book we get the cover of the Sunday Times and he's on the cover he's dressed like Molly Parkin you know, <laughs> but the, and this is Julian he invited he invited that right. sort of criticism yeah. because he wanted to keep in touch with what he would call his dickhead factor yeah. so whatever Julian did that was meant to be taken seriously he'd do something at the same time mm. to, to make him you know he play up, He played the fool. I admire the, the, the fact that
0: he he's been his own man. Yeah. really throughout this. You know, maybe not in the very first teardrop. Talking about someone being their own man. Let's just finish this by talking briefly about Bill Drummond and yeah. the KLF and everything you experienced with them, because he's certainly, you know, intellectually and and always else one of the most impressive. People to emerge from the UK and the KLF were extraordinary, and they seemed to almost be like the death of rock and roll in a way, weren't they? They were trying to, in some sense, yeah. destroying pop culture.
1: Well, well, I think partly having having become such a major part of pop culture. When when you think in '91, when they when they were the biggest selling singles act in Britain, yeah. the fact that they wanted to destroy themselves, if you like. Yes. You know? But the only thing I should say here is it wasn't just Bill. I mean, the, the thing about the KLF is that. It, it was such an equal partnership in every respect with between with Bill Drummond and Jimmy Cauty. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, and sometimes and I think it's because of the music press, really, because Bill was known. I mean, even as a manager of Echo and the Bunnymen, in particular, people knew who Bill yes, Drummond yes, was, yeah. and you didn't actually know who many managers were. No, no, there right. you know, you, was McLaren and obvious people like that, but everyone knew who Bill Drummond mm-hmm. was. So, so I think he's often perceived as the senior partner in the in, in that re, in yep. that relationship, and then to some extent. You know, he he probably did the lion's share of interviews, mm. and we all know this. That every band is somebody. Yeah, that t- that the mouth. Them, there's the mouth. There's oh, the horrible. mouth. <laughs> and, and everyone's fine with it for a while. And after, and then after,
0: yeah. then, any then, band with more than it. one mouth in it you, it usually implodes. Doesn't it, does, it? But, it does. But just so, but so yeah, but yeah. Among yeah. the the many sort of hair raising tales of, of the kale, of course, the, the story of the dead sheep and the British Awards. That's probably the most dramatic. Moment in the book, in a way, the dead sheep that they, the carcass that they dump outside yeah. of the Dorchester or something. I mean, how that was. It seems like it was quite a tricky thing for it was, you. Well,
1: it was tricky. I mean, with. we had we had a really close relationship. I mean, there wasn't much that they did where I wasn't privy to it. Yeah, you know, and, you know, and 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 the dead sheep incident was the poor story. Is that they their original plan was that they had this dead sheep because they were going to chop it up, cut it up on stage at the British Awards, And War. spray and a few rows held, held, with blood, yes. blood over the audience, which I genuinely thought, you cannot do this. <laughs> <laughs> you really, really <laughs> cannot do <laughs> this. You know? So I did tip off the press, ironically. I think it was it was the Daily Star, you know, and it was, I think it was the Star of the Sun because you could get those kind of stories in the in the pop pages. But it did the trick because the BBC took them backstage and said, you, know, you, can't, yeah. you cannot do this. Right. Instead, so instead, they'll produce
0: the machine, machine gun. Machine gun, actual firebanks. machine gun, as you point out.
1: And that, but that was interesting in itself. And somebody asked me this the other day. So, were they going to do that anyway? Mm. And and then I thought, actually, maybe they were because I remembered at, at the mm. run through, the run through at Hammersmith. And this might have been before I'd stopped them chucking the blood over everybody. They all came on with a crutch, and he pretended to gun people down with a crutch. Uh-huh. So it was only years later I put two and two together, oh, okay. so they must must have had that in mind. Mm-hmm. And to my knowledge, you know, they didn't carry a machine gun and blank cartridges around. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, look yeah, to, to yeah. you know to read stories like this and more. You need to buy a mixed book, fried, and justified. You'll get the references in that title. <laughs> Cope meets Drummond, the two men we've just been talking about. As I said earlier, the subtitle is "Hits, Myths, Breakups, and Breakdowns in the Record Business, from '78 to '98." Thanks so much for coming in and talking to us about your book and your career. And as we always say, please stick around because we're now just going to talk about what is new. On Rock's Back Pages. Mark.
2: Uh, Well, let's talk about the audio. This isn't an interview. It's basically a fairly rambling, chaotic conversation between three legendary figures of New Orleans music. Legendary band... I'm Stop saying legendary quite often. (laughs) It's a legendary Um, legend.
1: legend you Um, You know, my entire book, I don't... hope not. I don't think I used the word legendary once. Or iconic. Or iconic. Oh, God. <laughs> For that claimed. reason, the no folks, or you've or got to buy... Or acclaimed, mind. I think. Or acclaimed. Or acclaimed.
0: Wow. Um, well, did you have a list of verboten the
1: <laughs> terms? Uh, they're, just okay. they're just in my head. never <laughs> Back but no, but to the they're, they're legendary... legendary.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, band leader, Dave Bartholomew. Dave Bartholomew led the band, which basically backed all of Fats Domino's records, most of Little Richard's big records, and countless other hits out of New Orleans. And part of that band were the wonderful drummer Earl Palmer, who's also part of this conversation, and Alvin Red Tyler, who is a saxophonist, primarily baritone sax player, who was actually the guy who arranged most of those hits. And in this interview, they talk about doing the head arrangements, how there was nothing written down, they'd go into the studio for Fats or for Little Richard, tyler would work out the horn parts teach them and talk to the piano player all this sort of stuff it's a kind of fairly chaotic conversation but let's listen to a clip this is when it's this is red tyler talking about the difficulty non-new orleans musicians had coping with second line in a particular groove that comes out of new orleans
3: It has something to do that subconsciously, whether you play it or not, you hear that. You hear that that, that second line and feeling, feeling. And even when you're playing straight-ahead jazz. You, you you hear everybody locks in on, on a certain kind of a feeling. That's why it's so hard for musicians other than New Orleans musicians, like playing with uh, Doctor John. You take a, a like Ronnie Huber, a a saxophone player, but he had not a clue. I had to set up the feeling. I had to set up the feeling for the horns to play. I had, I had to interpret t- 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 the horns. They didn't know. They play all the notes right. But they, don't, they don't play with that same feeling. They don't do it.
2: I actually saw Dr. John uh, uh, Ronnie Scott's with Red Tyler, Red Tyler and, and, and Ronnie Cuba.
0: Oh, great. Uh, so, so, uh, what year would that oh, be? I can't
2: remember. Okay. Anyway, this is a great, great interview. They talk about, I think I didn't know, is that the B-side of Sam Cooke's very first secular single released under the name of Dale Cooke mm-hmm. was written by Red Tyler. Um, a that lovable, uh, forever, I think oh, forever, it's, forever. Okay. it's all about the bad luck of Smiley Lewis, who they all say he should have been as big a star as Fat's domino, that he'd write a song he'd cut it, it wouldn't do much two years later someone else two cases right. Fats Domino himself and Elvis Presley would take one of his records and make a huge hit out mm. of them talk about Earl Palmer going to Los Angeles a whole bunch of them were going to go to Los Angeles Earl was the only one who made it they'd even been saving money out of their paychecks from studio to afford to spend a month finding work in Los Angeles I see. Um, so, because at, at that point they'd have real problems with the local musicians' union, which they talk about extensively in this, very difficult musicians' union, and also that the fact is that the New Orleans music scene was in a state of some collapse at that point. Yeah. Talk about getting sacked for playing bebop between sessions on a li- live gig, no drinking or smoking on the bandstand, David Bartholomew's law. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's it's great. and <coughs> um, we'll, we'll play another clip later where they talk about really kind of what makes New Orleans music different.
1: I was going to say, uh, it's still relatively speaking it's completely unheralded isn't it the new orleans scene. i mean compared to compared to memphis
2: Memphis, Mm. um it is slightly in the shadow of memphis
0: isn't it Uh,
1: well i mean we were talking about this a couple
2: weeks ago i believe that there's a very good reason for that is that the new orleans music industry is incredibly backward looking they wouldn't go multi-track for Mm. example so while memphis had gone four track everything was in Mm. mono recorded in New orleans Mm. and So they didn't... They could have built a structure of studios in the audience if they'd chosen to. No-one chose to do it. And that actually opened the gates for a place like Memphis and, Mm. in turn, Muscle
0: Trolls to, to, to Mm. to succeed. So just to put this in context, we're running this because Dave Bartholomew died about a month ago at the mm-hmm. age of, the, of 100, hundred, hundred years old.
2: Nicely, all three of these guys lived fairly ripe old ages. Right. I believe Earl Palmer lived into his 80s. Red Tyler was the first to die. He was about 76. Now, yes. for
0: African-American men... <laughs> These are very good innings. Mm. The interviewer is Tony Sherman, yeah. or at least the guy recording the conversation. Yeah, you no, know, he, he
2: turns off yeah. every now and again. Yeah. He, keep, he takes a back seat, you know. Yes. Very, very well,
0: actually. Um, you know? he's, he has recently come on board. Very good writer on kind of Roots and Blues and all yeah. of that stuff. Real expert on things like New Orleans. And in fact, he was... Already at that time, at work on Earl Palmer's autobiography. Yeah, autobiography, so he did tons of interviews yeah. with Earl. Some of which we probably we will be adding well, soon. Well, uh, there's
2: one um, yeah. huge one a musician, which yeah. was, I think done
0: exactly that. He, time. Did, he did some great long pieces, yeah. also up for New York Times. Uh, Earl
2: Palmer, a bit more context: is that after he went to Los Angeles, he became effectively the other Wrecking Crew drummer. Everyone yeah. talks about Hal Blaine, but Earl Palmer was the other guy who played on countless rock and roll hits. Yes, I read somewhere that. It, One year he was down the musicians' union had him down for playing 476 dates in a year, you
0: know. Well, some Um, of those famous Spectre records people assume it's Hal Blaine, and it isn't, it's actually all both. Blaine was doing or both, sometimes both, both. Both, you're correct, but sometimes Blaine would be booked on other dates, and, and I think Blaine was the number one choice, anyway. I mean, it's lovely just to. Here, these three musicians yeah. just just shooting the breeze yeah. and I, comparing I, notes. I
2: assume they were playing together. The, the, they were in the same room for a reason. They may have been part of some sort of New Orleans music tour at that, that point. They clearly adore each other. There's, yes, there's, 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 there's it's there's, so there's,
0: infectious. You
2: know, there's such, such ease not,
0: I wonder whether Tony had simply brought them together. Maybe. And there's this great detail... I think that, am I right? Because actually Tony Tony sent me a little email about this and he said that Dave was wearing his Rock and Roll Hall of Fame special jacket, which apparently he did on, on occasions <laughs> like that. So I don't know what, it had medals or something on it. <laughs> so that was a nice detail to imagine Dave sitting there, the grand old man of, of New Orleans yeah. jazz and R&B, yeah. really. I mean, extraordinary. Well, but I still
2: think they were all jazz players jazz too. Jazz exactly. They'd play... R&B at the Dewdrop Inn and then in another club they'd yeah. be playing bebop and they were all you know, very sophisticated musicians You know, there's this artificial idea that a lot of us have that you're either, you're either one thing or the other yeah. Yeah. and in African American music you often get a huge crossover
0: yeah exactly so Mark why don't you tell us about some of the pieces that you have yeah, put into the, the library the, this week just
2: a few things this um, interview Alan Smith interviewing Jeannie C. Riley, the Harper Valley PTA woman for the enemy in '68, and he's kind of trying to get her southern accent. I like wild music, and to give you an example, you give me the Beatles' "Hey Jude" and "Revolution," and it's "Revolution" for me, which is actually a pretty <laughs> fabulous thing. To say. That's Mine's pretty reg- far out. Mine's regretted it wasn't "Revolution" number nine for her. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, happened. I was secretly hoping that's what Jeannie meant. Yeah. Jeffrey Cannon, an unpublished review of Jenny Mitchell, at The Isle of Wight in 70, The Guardian did publish his overall report on the festival, which we have on the site, but they didn't publish this extensive live review. And it's, it's really good because the gig really starts badly. She is very nervous. The crowd have just been seeing some some, some blues rock act or something, Mm. and suddenly this woman coming out singing these small songs. And he says, Then she began Woodstock, a painfully stupid choice of song. She asked the audience to join in the chorus. A few people join in, raggedly, out of sympathy for her, and from no true feeling. The words are not well enough known to be sung by a crowd in chorus, and we are not stardust or golden. And the reference to the Woodstock Festival was, at that point, a fake. Joanie lost the timing of the song again and again, her voice straining and discordant. She tries for chorus again. Silly lady. She had no right to ask for our commitment yet. The air is charged, palpable, like a room in which someone has just screamed. Joanie's demand feels aggressive, almost hysterical, as if she's forcing us to fail her. There is no doubt she's very upset. I mean, I, I think that's a really good piece of writing about... her. Uh, about, about, uh, ob- you know, a particular event,
0: she wins the crowd in the end. It, yeah. the, it,
2: it all comes good, and she ends up getting two on calls. So I think this is a really good description. Famously,
0: was- she did actually sort of stop the show, didn't you? you might remember this. I think she, she was so upset. Uh, angered, I think. She had a st- so she actually she sort of addressed yeah. the Isle of Wight crowd yes. and said, "No, you know, lis- listen, people, you know, if you show <laughs> me some res- show, show me some, I some think respect. she did." and oh, that well, was he, also yeah.
2: mentioned that in in, in in the article. She also the stage invader comes on and starts shouting through the microphone. I mean, it's a, it's a that's right. It's a tough and show. There's
0: a whole kind of isn't there a sort of yippie thing yes, going on there? That- and Townsend like hits someone over the head yeah. with his guitar. Uh, <laughs> did you see Joni or that, did you go to any of those festivals? I, I didn't. I didn't didn't, I
1: white. didn't go I didn't go to any festivals because I just I couldn't I just didn't like large gatherings of people. But um, <laughs> <laughs> which is a bit of a drawback in my own. I don't presence, think Joni did really either. No no. Was, no, no, I, I saw her in '68, first time she came over. Did you? Festival when Hall? when she did this thing called Festival of Contemporary Song, yes. right, which was purple Convention with Sandy Denny. It was the first time I saw Sandy Denny. Wow. Jackson C. Frank. Yeah. Joni Mitchell opened. No, the Johnstons opened. Joni Mitchell came on second. And I think Al Stewart closed it, and that it was. Wow! And
0: uh, that's that summer. It was Joe Boyd brought her Joe over. Boy, for Joe Boyd brought her over, yeah. and I
1: think that's why Fairport yeah. recorded Joni Mitchell's songs. 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 You were
2: very into those sorts of singer-songwriters. Them. You yeah. mentioned mm. in the book that you saw Tim Buckley twice in '72. Was that right? Something I like saw that. Saw
1: him su- once on it. I never remember which one is yeah. which. I saw him on his own at I think Queen Elizabeth Hall. Yeah. But he supported the Incredible String Band. Yeah.
0: That was late 60s. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. no, that's, that's, I mean, it's, it's
1: Danny Thompson's when Danny Thompson yeah. played bass. I, I mean, and,
2: yeah. you know, you're a bit, uh, little older than both of us, and you actually were very lucky to see a lot of stuff that I think we'd have given our eye to I saw Tim Buckley way at the bottom of the bill at Nebworth in 74. Uh, I'd never heard of him about time. Yeah. Well, I had heard of him because I'd read about him in Zigzag, of course. Yeah, of but, course. But I'd actually heard of uh, him. And let it rock perhaps. We we're, yes. we're, were going in. We were actually kind of in, entering the grounds. And he was already on stage. I mean, startled by his mm. voice. This extraordinary sort of...
1: I think that was a sort of Sophronia period.
2: It was it? a very yeah. different yeah. Tim yeah. to the
0: one you would have seen yeah. the, what the Queen Elizabeth Hall or the Festival well, World It was, it was it? both, but I can't remember the yeah, quit, yeah, 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 sure. exactly.
2: A report in melody Maker from 71. This is actually the second of two almost identical reports. Funkadelic were banned, first of all, by the Albert Hall, then banned by the Lyceum. And the Lyceum's manager, a man called Mike Ludbrook, says, we run a concert hall for music and musicians. We don't run a circus at the Lyceum. If people want to see a circus, so they can go to Bertram Mills. <laughs> I mean, it's thinly disguised racism from the start you know and the previous week the Albert Hall abandoned I think they eventually did play the roundhouse Von
1: Cadillac did actually I think they did play the 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 roundhouse yeah. yeah So what Moving year? To,
0: what year was this? 71. 71. Yeah. Um, and they actually, li- I mean, as we established last week, they actually lived for for a period in London. Yeah. And they went to Granny Takes a Trip and <laughs> <laughs>
3: all
2: that
0: sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. they, were freaks, they were freaks. <laughs> they were freaks. Yeah, exactly.
2: Sound 79, uh, Sandy Robertson interviewed the Cramps. This is quite an early Cramps interview, 79. I mean, yeah. they've been going, what, a year or so yeah. by then. And Sandy Robertson's really smitten, you know. They're, they're just his sort of band. Ivy Rorschach's just does give good quotes um, well she says it was just they were out of control she's talking about the original rockerbillars the real rockerbillars not the ones who had yeah, hits yeah. they're out of control those people didn't fit in anywhere that's what made them rockerbillars and then Lux interior says about his extravagant hairdo he says it had to do with having a crazy hairdo but it had to do with getting that hairdo messed up at the end of the performance Dressed up to get messed up, So was <laughs> kind of pretty nice. You, you were,
0: a, you like the cramps? Yeah, yeah. I, I saw the cramps a few times. I'm sure you did, Mick. Did you? In I, the, only the, them in once, in I, that yeah. Era? yeah. I mean, I, they were an astonishing live yeah. band, and and if you sort of took them at face value, I think they were they were they were pretty great. Yeah, the, the cramps are massively influential. Yeah, yeah. Of course, yeah. you know. Yes,
1: yeah, so it's funny actually. This is me trying to get the book my the book in there, but, <laughs> yeah. but, but not. Um, no, no. It's, it's funny
0: talking <laughs> about Ford. New Orleans.
1: New Orleans, mm. talking about the cramps. The one person I worked with that that was into those bands was Jason Pierce, spiritualist. Right? Yeah. You know, because I was thinking when you were talking about New Orleans, is that most of the groups I've worked with, there's no evidence that they, that they've they've listened to New Orleans music at no, all. No yeah. that's
0: true. It that's is, another great adventure I had with Mick in Toronto when we, oh, we you the, you the, the, the tallest yeah. gig in the world. Oh, no, the, the highest gig on, the earth. Highest gig think, on yeah. earth. So we went up the CN Tower <laughs> <laughs> and spiritualized played at the very top yeah. of this they thing. It was things, extraordinary.
2: They liked doing that because they also played the top of World Trade Center. Yeah, that, yes. The,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. The, Which you mentioned in the book.
1: But but no it's interesting what Probably for most of the people i worked with that, you know the, it's, they were all very high it's the same they are all very high <laughs> a with that, but it's the same <laughs> influence isn't it it's the same influence isn't, yes yeah. you know you're always going back to television and velvets yeah, and yeah. That, that
0: whole yeah. That yeah, thing yeah yeah. it's funny too, I mean, just briefly listening again to Ike and the Bunny Man. I was wondering what did they sound like actually I realised they sounded like they were definitely influenced by Talking Heads. And I'd massive, never really gotten conver- but a lot of the guitar, rhythm guitar the, the jerky, parts, the jerky guitar parts, very yeah. Talking Heads. Um, but then there's even a, even a bit of Joy Division in there, yeah. and there's Bowie in the in the the vocal bit of kind of Doors, bit of Iggy, you know. But I'd never quite maybe just because I was too close to those records at the time, realised what a huge influence Talking mm-hmm. Heads were on. Yeah. Were on. Uh, it's, um, ca- it's
1: kind of strange with Talking Heads because. In a way, I, I, I don't know how influential they were because you, you couldn't. Nobody could sound like Talking Heads. No. So you can point to uh, people used to say XTC had yeah. some of that, and um, I know Dave Balf was very influenced by, by mm-hmm. the, the kind of Prophet synth, the whole sound there. Yes, but, but they. I think they were just so out there on their own. Just right? yeah. mm-hmm. Such an individual sound. Completely. That, completely. Um, I think people were inspired by them but yeah. it wasn't like the Ramones or the Velvet. No, where you, completely where you, where you can kind of copy Exactly them. Yeah, yeah, yeah What's next? Yeah, anyway, yeah
2: uh, um, uh, Michael Goldberg, news report from Rolling Stone from March 85 and this is really about this extraordinary event when John Fogerty got sued by his ex-record company boss uh, Saul Zainz Saints. Uh, 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 um, yeah f- First of all, he'd written a song called Zance Can't Can't, can't Dance, dance yeah. um, on his sensefield album Yeah and he changed it from Zantz to Vance and like the second pressing of the album. The changes in the song, however, haven't satisfied Zantz, who wants the cut removed from the LP. As a result, his attorneys are going ahead with a defamation suit against Fogerty and Warner Brothers over both Zantz can't dance and the bitter comments Fogarty has been making in the interviews about fantasy records and unnamed executives at the label. Hmm. It's defamatory, said Norman Rudman, and i for both Zantz and fantasy. It's slanderous or libelous, depending only on the medium that's been used to perpetrate it. When you call somebody a thief or say that somebody stole your money or acted like a slave driver. You've gone beyond the bounds of saying merely unfavourable things about people and gone into the kind of statements that are just plain irreducible defamations. Mm. The Atornas, and this is the fascinating extra thing, the attorneys will also be filing a copyright infringement suit against Fogerty, Warner Brothers, and the Wenaha Music, his publishing company, on behalf of Fantasy Records over Old Man Down the Road, the first single from Sensefield, which they claim is based on Credence's 1970 tune Run Through the Jungle, a song for which Fantasy owns the copyright. So basically, they and this went to court, both things went to court. The uh, Zantz Can't Dance thing was settled out of court as a defamation suit. Fantasy and Zantz lost the. The, the idea that Fogerty had plagiarised himself is just palpably ludicrous. So it's, it's just a fascinating story, yeah. and, you, and, and you just wonder about what kind of you know, depth of mm. relationship had plumbed. Sure. I mean, I Fogerty's a difficult guy. He fell out with his brother. He fell out with all the band. He's fallen mm. out with loads of people. You yeah. know, there's no doubt about that. But Zant sounds like a really pretty nasty Peace piece of work. Melody Making 91 Cliff Jones interview with Mark Hollis, of Talk Talk. This is actually Around t- it's actually about the recording and making of Laughing Stock, which is the- effectively Talk Talk's last album. He says, Mark says, I hate since I used them to help make multi-textural music when we couldn't afford real musicians, mm. i.e., the first half of the, catalog, the Talk mm. Talk catalogue, for all intents and purposes. Mm. And then he, they they talk about the torturous process of making this record. Mm. You know, first of all, he had set up a studio, no windows, completely dark, kind of liquid light on the walls, candles, incense. But then they would relentlessly work on the stuff. They'd take yeah. one snippet from one multitrack, glue it into the other multitrack, all kinds of stuff. It, it just sounds like a ghastly process, you know. <laughs> and the engineer, whose name escapes me, who works on this, not to Tim Freeze Green, but yeah. the actual engineer, he seems kind of, kind of you know, good-natured about it. He seems that basically for three months he didn't see, see the light of day. Right. Uh, and it was just full-on. I, you get the feeling that Mark Hollis is slightly becoming unhinged. There. yeah, for, for sure. Yeah, I, I just
1: um, picked up on Cliff Jones, who I used to know really, really well. And,
0: um, okay. was a great writer, and then, yeah. obviously... He then he became Gay became Dad. became Gay Dad. Well, he didn't become a Gay Dad. <laughs> he formed on the <laughs> fan called Gay Dad, to be clear. But, 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 very,
1: you know, but the thing with Gay Dad is, um, Gay Dad were going for years and years and years before they actually made a record. Mm. I think the record came out in 98 because I I was nominally doing their press for about six years before. Seriously? Seriously. And there wasn't anything to do because they hadn't done anything. (laughs) But I'd just have these mammoth conversations with Cliff who'd be telling me, how, how yeah. gay dad were we going to be a combination of Led Zeppelin and Fairport Convention Legion Leaf and then when the record comes out it doesn't sound like that at all no <laughs> no I, I had the same
0: experience because he used to come into the Mojo office Mick and wearing this incredibly smelly sheepskin coat and he was such a character we also yeah. loved him and he talked talk about this band, gay dad and we just like you know it's never going to happen, isn't it? So never did happen. Never what one one it, but he was a very engaging yeah. guy who, who I remain very fond of.
2: And lastly, Rolling Stone ninety nine, the first really major interview with Britney Spears, yeah, by Stephen Daly. I remember when you know, when this came out because this is absolutely around the time of "Hit Me Baby One More Time" and that sort of stuff. It's when she did that video with her in schoolgirl uniform, but with her, her blouse tied up sort of stuff, and and her mum's there. She's doing what's up? Is it Max Martin? Who's Max Martin, Max Martin was Martin. the
0: producer and writer. Yeah,
2: yeah. And Britney's you know, right in the middle of this kind of maelstrom of actually kind of massive sudden stardom. You know, and she says things like kids have low self-esteem, and then peer pressures come, and they go into the wrong crowd. That's when all the bad stuff starts happening—drugs and stuff. Right. Well, you know, she came cannot herself. <laughs> you know, so.
0: bad things did did inevitably start happening for for Britney. Yeah. I
2: actually got um, I. I Perhaps I really like some of those bad things happen to us all didn't
0: they yeah. some of those records are extraordinary And this is by Stephen Daly yeah. who was the original drummer in Orange Juice and I actually spoke to him the other day he's come on board recently we're delighted to have him Absolutely. he moved to New York in, in 89 and uh, wrote for Rolling Stone mm-hmm. and ended up running for Vanity First so he did extremely well but I did want to mention the Britney connection I do think those records are extraordinary yeah. and I think Max Martin was some kind of pop genius did, did you see the, the documentary about the swedish kind of hit no, factory I, I, that, I, I, I and there's a really interesting moment where when they first send britney the disney mm. girl to uh to, she worked she was a mouseketeer She was one of those disney yeah, yeah, dancer yeah. singers yeah. and they sent her to stockholm and they were just like there's no way this girl's got star appeal or anything. i mean she just she's just you know and they gave her baby one more time and she just transformed into this <laughs> extraordinary yeah. sort of pop star, really, yeah. before their very eyes, and they I knew they that, were onto yeah, something.
2: I love that record. Yes, it's I mean, I fabulous. really, really love that record. And oops, you know, I did
0: it again. Oops, probably I even
2: You know, I'm not a pop listener, but when pop gets really good, it's just, I think, the best sound in the world, mm. and, I, and I think. You know the interesting about that those records you listen to them now they sound positively organic compared to stuff that's been made these days. Yeah. You know, there's no True. autotune involved. It's mm. all it's you know it's a it's a much more real sounding mm. voice. Now voices are so processed, yeah. which I've, I struggle with as an old man. You know, but mm. there we go. so you see,
0: Mick, we don't just talk about. Lou Harris and Echo and the Bunny Man mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. We talk about Britney Spears. That's <laughs> great. <Good, good. laughs> there's, there's room for everyone at this <laughs> at this table. <laughs> it's been a delight yeah. having you in Thank, thanks yeah. so much for coming in as said previously look out for Mixed Book Fried and Justified it's an extraordinary insight into that era of the, the, the British record industry you've written a book since then and and I hope we, we have more to read by you in due course
1: another four years another you? four <laughs> years yes those four years <laughs> don't tell
0: me about them thanks so much for coming in and we, we bow out as ever with a second clip from the week's audience yeah which is about
2: kind of what makes New Orleans different in terms of why the music is different in New Orleans from anywhere else in America great little clip and well we'll see you next week bye. bye bye
3: what is it about the city yeah the whole the whole thing that like they, they keep saying going back to where it started I mean it's just something that, 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 that happened here that, that people felt. It's this type of music that they put themselves into and they felt it. I don't know why. why,
0: is, why is
1: this,
3: I wonder why the city is so conducive to great music. Well, I think it was a very cosmopolitan city. It had a, a, like a melting pot of, of different uh, races and cultures. You know, it is very important. Yeah, like that I mean, was it just, very, very important. At this table, everybody it's is a completely different red, color. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Right. red the lightest, I'm yeah. the second lightest. Yeah. This was <laughs> a mecca. This was a mecca at one time. The first opera house in New Orleans was the Opera, old opera house, uh, the Opera House. Here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was the first opera house in the in the country. Do you know what it means to miss New Orleans and miss City tonight night Indeed.
1: That was Red Tyler, Dave Bartholomew, and Earl Palmer in conversation with Tony Sherman in 1997, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast.
2: Many thanks to special guest Mick Houghton,
1: whose new book, Fried and Justified, is published by Faber
2: and available now. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and the producer was Jasper Murison Bowie.
1: You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. Hit me,
2: baby, one more time.